Warning! This episode contains foul language, potentially disturbing stories, and mentions of abuse. listening to Keep It Weird, the podcast for all things strange, unusual, paranormal, supernatural, creepy, sticky, gross, scary, and everything in between. Each week we get to sit down and chat about something weird. And this week and next are extremely special to us because we are finally getting to talk about our home state, the land of Lincoln. This is a hometown haunt special and we're heading to Illinois. Woo! buddy woo buddy my name is ashley and this is my co-host lauren hi weirdos this week and next we are going to be sharing with you the strangest stories out of this midwestern state ghosts murderers native american legends and lore visits from extraterrestrials the most haunted small town in america and more and get ready for two very long episodes because either (laughs) illinois is especially weird or we have just like mad love for our home state i'm not sure i don't know which one it is i i do think illinois is weird in the best way but i also think we just went hard because it's our home state (laughs) and we were just so excited I actually It's going to be so fun. I got to give a shout out to my mom and dad, Ron and Pam, because they sent me a really nice care package last week. And in that Sweetest. care package was my old Weird Illinois book that I've mentioned on this show before. The whole reason I learned about like Thunderbirds and how creepy yes. Alton is. So that was really fun to basically read the whole thing again because that's what I did. Um. <laughs> yeah, you were so funny. I could tell when you were reading it because you would just text me a million things all at once. Like, hey, here are some ideas. Hey, here's this other thing I heard Have of. Heard oh of my this? gosh, <laughs> I'm super overwhelmed. I'm reading about 20 <laughs> things at once. <laughs> like she is diving in. I really had to narrow my topics amazing. down. Yeah, I could have made a new podcast about just weird Illinois. Honestly, oh, I should do like. That. Yeah, I was going to say, do you do you want to make a Would spinoff? Like I think to? it's very possible. Uh, yeah, so we have so a lot much. to say. We'll get into it. I also have to say, um, in the care package, so my mom, <laughs> basically, uh, she just cleaned out, like, the basement and the closets and stuff, and she found these old, like, you know, copy machine, you know how you can, like, sit on it and take a copy uh, of your butt? Yeah, of course. She found these old copies that she made of my chubby little baby hands. And she Uh, sent them to me and she goes, why did I do this? This is the creepiest thing I've ever seen. And they are creepy. Or the cutest. Nope. They're creepy. creepy? They are totally creepy. (laughs) So she framed one of them and sent it to me. And Joe's like, do we have to hang this up? And I'm like, yes. (laughs) He's like, this is terrifying (laughs) and I don't want it in our home, actually. (laughs) 
I, as a mom, am like, that's the cutest thing I've ever heard. But I can imagine that little baby hands on a copier looks a little. You should. So I'm gonna I send you a picture true. of it. I'll post a picture of it actually on the on on our social media because it's literally yeah, it, like, it looks like I a baby was like being drug away, <laughs> <laughs> like murdered. Oh, no. <laughs> Ashley. <laughs> Oh, Pam, why did you send that to Ashley? This is not the time. She even said, oh, she was like, so why funny. did I do this? <laughs> like, <laughs> why I did know. I make this terrifying thing? <laughs> oh, God love her. That's amazing. So. <laughs> Speaking of shouting out to family, this is kind of like a half shout out to listeners and to family. I already told you this, Ashley, but so adorable. Today, not today for you listeners, because you're hearing this a few days later, but on July 7th, it was my niece Josie's birthday. Happy who birthday, I have Josie. Happy birthday, Jojo. Um, <laughs> it's what I call her. She, I call her Jojo and she calls me Lolo. Oh no worries. God. It's just the cutest thing that's ever happened, but it's fine. Also, today when we were FaceTiming, she was like, Aunt Lolo has silly hair, and it was just my normal hair in a bun, so that was very offensive. <laughs> and you know that children only speak the truth, so yeah. I was like, God damn it. Cool. And I went and told Alex, and he looked up at my hair and shrugged and was kind of like, I get it. <laughs> Josie's right. I was like, damn it. But anyway. So today was her birthday, and I posted uh, an Instagram story just saying happy birthday to my adorable little niece. And a few of you listeners who clearly are just so invested in our show, which is honestly, it was the best compliment and moment ever. I immediately told Ashley, you messaged me and were like, wow, Josie, I've never seen the face behind the Josie stories. It was so exciting to see her. And you also asked for updates, which I thought was great. So I'm really just shouting out to you guys for being so amazing and knowing our lives. But also I have bad news. I have no updates. Aww. Nothing has happened recently. And they also moved out of that house where they had all of the experiences. But what I told some of you and what I also told Ashley today was I'm very curious to see what happens when they move into the new house. If something follows them or if it was truly just the house and Josie's bedroom. So lots to find out in August when they move in. They're currently living with my parents in a very non-haunted condo. So we'll see. <laughs> and I'll update you then. For anyone, I'm, I'm sure you could infer what was happening from that conversation. But Josie has had uh, an interesting life. How old is she now? Is she three today? She turned three today. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the past three years, she's had um, a couple encounters with things that we can't see yeah. so <laughs> she thinks she's seeing things in her rocking chair hearing voices she claims to see like think she's seen her grandpa who is now deceased she also knew her grandma's birthday even though no one had told her so we think somebody was like whispering her grandma's birthday in her ear like a ton of things it's very creepy so <laughs> lots of events lots of things are happening <laughs> but anyway, we can move on to Illinois. Yeah, and that's we a should. good segue because they live in Illinois. Perfect. That's exactly the segue I was looking for. <laughs> we'll get right into it since we have so much to say. And you are going first, and I have no idea what you're talking about today, and I'm really excited. Yes, I know. I kind of kept it from you because I think it's so fun when we surprise each other. And I don't know anything about yours either. So this is very fun. Um, I wanted to start off with, since, again, great segue, my sister and Josie, who live in Peoria, Illinois, we're going to talk <laughs> about sort of a Peoria, Illinois haunt. It's technically in Bartonville, Illinois, which is literally right next door to Peoria. I kind of think 
it technically is Peoria, and maybe it's just like the name of the neighborhood. I could be wrong. Someone correct me. That's fine. But Bartonville, Illinois, very close to my hometown. We're going to talk about the Bartonville Asylum as I grew up knowing it, but found out it had so many different names that were not just that. But in my freshman year of high school, I actually went here. You went there? I went there. They got yes. a visit. It was a popular place to go. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like I went, I wasn't put into the institution, but <laughs> I went and visited it because it was like the place to be when we were in high school. It was like, let's go to the Bartonville Asylum and check out all the spooks. Ooh, and creepy. I know my sister has been there as well. She may have been there a couple of times. I only went the one time, but it is very spooky. It's very cool. And even though I've been, I didn't know the history of it. So I wanted to dive into a little history. And, and if you have any other names that it's been called, because I think it might be in a story of mine next week. Oh, shoot. Yeah, I do have the other names. They're in. They're ingrained in my story. So you'll have to speak up if okay, it's something you covered. That would be so wild. This was originally called the Illinois Asylum for the Incurably Insane. Oof. Does that ring a bell to you? No. But what a name, right? <laughs> yeah. No, what on earth? <laughs> Illinois Asylum for the Incurably Insane. And before the hospital even opened back in 1902, it went through a little struggle right from the start. So the first building on the site was finished in 1897, but it was described as a very complex castle-like building. It was built to look like a very medieval type structure. It was very bizarre. It did not look like a hospital at all. So the building was actually never inhabited and it was actually torn down and replaced by the much better cottage plan of multiple buildings, multiple cottages in 1902. So the reason for the demolition of the original structure is uncertain, but most people believe that it was covering up an abandoned mine shaft under oh, the property and it was undermining the structural integrity of this weird castle-like building. Um, also, another theory thrown out was that it just, it was totally out of harmony with the ideas for actually taking care of the mentally ill. Just, it was such an off-putting, weird building that did not look like a hospital. So, whatever way you want to put it, the building was torn down and rebuilt to be these multiple cottage buildings and they were finished by 1902 and it ended up being 33 different buildings um, which was just yeah like all these patient rooms but also a utility building a power station i believe there was a church um there was housing for patients and staff an admin building just everything so it became kind of this huge campus and this new hospital opened under dr george a zeller and dr zeller was considered a pioneer in mental health and he knew how to properly run a hospital i like this dude he also zeller is just like the peoria name if anybody out there who's listening is from peoria you know this like zeller is just the name like everybody's related Everybody is a Zeller. It's the most common <laughs> Peoria name. So I thought it was fun that the doctor who ran this place I was a Zeller. I love that but... about small towns. Because like yes, one time. You know that too. Yeah. So Joey, this is a quick story. Joey has been to my hometown, I think three times now. And mm -hmm. one of the times he took me aside. We were out at like a bar or something. And he was like, hey, like, I don't mean to be a jerk. But like, why is everyone staring at me? He was like, I don't like the way everyone's staring at me. And I was like, oh, Joe, like, they're trying to figure out who you are, like, who you're related yes. to. Yes. And I See was like, they know you. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? You kind of look like a Markham. 
<laughs> because I was oh. thinking of the families in our town. I was one like, you could families. be a Markham. They're probably wondering how you're related to the Markhams. <laughs> that is hilarious. But that's something and that the happens. Same way. Yeah, where if, you, if you're an unknown person coming to a small town, you will get stared at. And it's not a rude thing. They're literally like, whose son is that? Oh, 100%. Like, I brought Alex to, like, the dive bar that me and my friends went to, like, all through college, like, even in the early days when we had fake IDs and then into adulthood. And it was like, he was getting looked at by everybody, like, scanned the whole time he was walking through the bar. And it was like, hey, nobody's judging you. Don't worry about it. They're trying to see who you are, who you're related to. But yeah, small towns, man. It It's a wild ride. <laughs> so Zeller, Zeller. Yes. Peoria name. But we love Dr. Zeller. He's so cool. So insane asylums, which I hate calling them that, but that was what they were called back in the day. But we have talked about this on the podcast before that they did not always use great no. methods to take care of their patients. Um, and Zeller was so wanting to be progressive and get rid of this. So that's why I like him. He started a movement when he opened the hospital to not use restraints unless absolutely necessary. He didn't like wow. straight jackets. He didn't like the buckles on the bed. He didn't like the heavy sedatives and he wanted to avoid them as much as possible. So he um, made that happen at the hospital, which was very, very cool. And he was pretty much the first person to do it. And he also wanted hospital practices to not just become more humane, which was amazing, but to start taking care of the unclaimed bodies of patients, which was another huge thing in these hospitals. So patients who died in the care of a mental hospital who had no family members to claim them would form a big problem for the asylums because they just did not know what to do with the bodies. And they were most likely finding very odd and probably illegal ways to get rid of the bodies and not doing it in a great way. So Dr. Zeller is like, absolutely not. Even if families aren't coming to claim these bodies, we need to do something different. We need to honor their death. So he formed a burial team made up of several staff members and patients who were enough of sound mind to help while they were there. And they were on this team and they helped to bury the unclaimed bodies in a small cemetery on the hospital grounds, which was huge and innovative at the time. And Dr. Zeller just really wanted to honor these people, give them a proper burial rather than resort to something horrible to do with the bodies. So yeah, like a mass grave started, or, you know, selling yes. them to people who will bleach their bones. Exactly. And, yeah. Yeah. It could just get so gross, so awful. So he was like, let's let's do a burial for this. So we formed this team. And one member of the very of the burial team was a very well-liked patient who everyone at the hospital called Old Book. And his actual name is recorded as being A Bookbinder. Like just a, the first initial A Bookbinder. A Bookbinder? Book <laughs> bookbinder. <laughs> That's the name, which is crazy. First initial A and Bookbinder. Okay. It's real. But everyone just called him Old Book. And he was loved. Everybody liked him and he was so easy to get along with and he worked hard and he was just, he was the favorite of this place. So Old Book was so well liked that when he sadly passed away, around 100 nurses and more than 300 outside spectators are said to have attended his funeral oh because they enjoyed him so much, I know. And these attendees were also witness to the first strange sight to come out of this hospital. So according to Dr. Zeller in his memoir and a lot of the staff members through, you know, word of mouth and reporting it to their friends, everybody who attended pretty much almost everybody very clearly saw the apparition of old book appearing next to the elm tree while he was being buried. 
Now, at the time, like, no one was gasping or screaming and saying, there he is. It was talked about afterwards, I think, because it felt so calm and normal. Like, of course he would be there, but everybody was, you know, cross-referencing and telling their stories. And so many people saw that same apparition of him leaning against the elm tree. And this was the same tree where he often leaned after he helped to bury a patient. It seemed to be the spot where he would mourn and honor the dead and kind of take his emotional moment before he moved on after his job. So it was actually kind of sweet. And then a year or so after Old Book's funeral, the tree began to die. And every attempt to chop it down or burn it and start over completely failed. Nobody could chop it down. Nobody could get it to light on fire. So the tree, every time somebody tried to chop it or start a fire, is said to have wailed and cried and sounded like a human was moaning inside of it, (laughs) right? Holy buckets, that is awful. It's so eerie. So if you even tried to touch it or harm it in any way, you would hear like a human moaning out of it. So people eventually just gave up and said, okay, I guess we'll just leave this dying tree here because this is horrifying. But... The tree, another year after that, was eventually struck by lightning in a storm and it fell over, so it was finally able to be cleared out of the area. But it is said that the moaning and the appearance of old books still stuck around, and he was spotted several more times near the cemetery. So he never left, but the tree moaning stopped, which is a positive. (laughs) Then in 1907, the hospital dropped the word incurable and became the Illinois General Hospital for the Insane, which I think... It's still terrible, but luckily, in 1909, it traded it all in and became the Peoria State Hospital. Much better, cleaner, beautiful. So many believe that as far as asylums go, the Peoria State Hospital became probably the finest institution in the world in its time because it had the highest rate of cure and reintegration into society, which you can kind of get from the stories I've been telling. Like, they knew how to train these people and make them able to go out and find jobs again. They were training them and having them work in the hospital and start to feel some sense of normalcy. They weren't treated like they were lesser than. They were treated like actual humans and given the tools they needed to go back into the world, which is so great. And it was successful for decades. But in the 1960s, the hospital was in need of remodeling. And when they asked the state for money, the state realized that they already had been giving them so much money. They said, you're one of the most expensive institutions that we fund, so we're actually going to cut back rather than give you more. Which was very sad because this result meant that instead of going from what they had was one staff member per three patients, went to having one staff member per 60 patients. What? Which is insane. That's how much they had to cut back. One staff member for 60 patients in this huge-ass hospital. And then all that's going to do is, like, lessen the quality of care. And they are going to have to start using sedatives. And they are going to have to start using straps. Ashley, you called it right there. That's exactly what happened. It's so sad. So the hospital declined rapidly, to no surprise. Patient care was at its worst from 1970 to 1973. The staff was so overworked, and it coincided with the doc- with the state deciding to hire doctors called limited licensed physicians to try and help out. That was their goal. But these physicians were from the Philippines. They barely spoke any English, and there was a huge lack of communication, which then resulted in three patients' deaths in 1972. Two of these deaths were due to patient-on-patient violence because of the short staff not able to stop it. And the third was a very severely mentally handicapped man who put 
tinfoil into water. He wet the tinfoil and stuffed it in his ear canal, which led to a really bad infection and then meningitis. And then he died from it. And he wasn't able to express that he was sick because nobody could communicate with him, which is so, so sad. So the hospital was shut down after state got word of these three deaths in very close proximity. And it was closed despite all the protests of the staff and even some of the people who live nearby who were like, this place needs to stay. But Nobody listened and it closed down, um, which it's just so horrible the way it ended because it used to be such a reputable place. But even through the hospital's really, really rough last two years, last three years, it is the experience of most that have visited the hospital since its closing that the energy or the spirits that roam this institution and roam these halls are mostly happy patients rather than disgruntled, angry That's ones. Nice. Yeah, so there is a positivity and not a feeling of anger when you're there, which I actually can say I I mostly agree with because when I was there, I I mean, this was forever ago, but I remember there were some feelings of heaviness in certain areas when I went in there, but I don't think I ever felt threatened. Like, nothing felt menacing, nothing felt evil. Um, There was just some heavy rooms where I felt a little down, but I almost feel like that that's so normal for being in any hospital because there is death and there is sickness there, but nothing ever felt evil, which was good. Um, author Sylvia Schultz, who has studied this mental institution very carefully for a long time and has written um, maybe three, no, two books on it. For a long time, her beliefs have been the reason this place is haunted is because the vast majority of the time the patients got good care. And since the patients lived their entire lives in this hospital, they decided to stay after death. This hospital is haunted to the rafters and it has nothing to do with the quality of care the patients got for over 69 years. So I like that she said that because I don't think that's a bad theory. I'm kind of with her that this was a good place for the most part. And I think happy ghosts were roaming the halls. So I'm into it. I had a positive experience there. And I agree. But many ghost hunters, investigative teams and amateur teens like myself have been (laughs) in and out of this falling apart hospital since it closed back in the day. And the most common occurrences over the years that people have reported have been some sort of light touching of the back or your shoulders or your arms, loud footsteps, temperature changes, very faint apparitions, sometimes even going through walls, unexplained audio recordings, and of course, lots of orbs appearing in photos that couldn't be explained. A few people even report that they felt a hand in their hand, in the tuberculosis ward specifically. Author Sylvia Schultz, who I mentioned before, was one of them, saying that she has been to this place on multiple occasions because she was studying to write her book, and almost every time she went, she felt a hand in her hand, almost like it was looking for comfort on different occasions. Um, Many others believe that they're being followed the moment they walk in and as they go from room to room. It varies from a feeling of being followed, like the sensation, to actually hearing someone walking behind you and hearing footsteps. And I definitely felt this when I was there. I didn't hear footsteps, but I felt constantly that someone was behind me. I even thought I felt breathing at one point, and I just, I was looking over my shoulder at every second, but of course I saw nothing every time I turned around, but definitely felt like something was with me the whole time. Other reports say that in the hallway, sometimes you can smell pine, which was used in the cough medicine back in the day, 
And some of the patients that had tuberculosis, when they would cough, the lesions would rupture and they would cough up a bunch of blood, which apparently is splattered all over the floors there. I didn't see any of it, but maybe it had faded over time. But paranormal investigators have reported that they tasted blood when they visited the hospital oh, and were in certain rooms. And like several people, not even on the same occasion, on different times have reported, you know, having that iron blood taste in their mouth, which is super creepy and I hate it. But since its closure, most of the hospital's buildings have been demolished or converted into commercial business. And the Bowen Building, where almost everyone has gone on tours, and that's where I went when I was in high school, um, it once housed the hospital's administrative offices. And it stood for the longest amount of time, even after all the buildings had been torn down. It was even petitioned to become a landmark and possibly be a place where they could do haunted ghost tours and make some money off of it. But... Unfortunately, there just weren't enough funds for it, and it got demolished in 2017, even after the fundraising efforts of the Save the Bowen Foundation, but it is gone, and now it's just an empty lot with the ruins of the old building. However, the cemetery still stands on the hospital grounds, and rumors still come to this day of sightings of old book and the sounds of his crying, and his grave site actually finally got a headstone just back in 2010. I guess that's 10 years ago now. It feels like that should be more I recent. Know, I was going to say, it feels like that should be two years ago, but it is 10. I know, but it's 10. But his grave went without a headstone for years and years. But 2010, finally, a former hospital employee who was still alive decided to create a memorial in honor of this beloved patient of the Peoria State Hospital. So he now has a headstone and, like, a full-blown memorial in his honor because he was so loved. So he, may he rest in peace with his new little memorial. Um, if you want to see more on this hospital, everybody, my last little promo is that it has been on several television shows and documentaries. It's all over YouTube, but was specifically on a an episode of Ghost Hunters called Prescription for Fear. And also Sylvia Schultz, the author that I talked about earlier, wrote a book called Fractured Spirit, which has amazing reviews. It's available on Amazon and through Whitechapel Press. I'm so excited to read it. It's going to be next on my list because I think she writes about some of the history of patients that were there. I was going to say, is it just about the Peoria State Mental Hospital or is it like... That that specific book is. She writes a lot about Illinois in general, but that Fractured Spirits, I believe, is just about the hospital. And I think she did a little bit more history on specific patients and then also goes in deeper onto her experiences when she went there. Because she has claimed that basically every time she went there, something crazy happened. And she was forever changed by visiting this place. And this was the reason she was convinced to even believe in there being any type of, you know, other world, other possible timeline, possibly a place that you go after you're dead. Like, she had no interest in this until she found the Peoria State Hospital because... This was where it was all revealed that things can happen that she can't explain. So that's pretty cool. And that is the, as I refer to it, Bartonville Asylum. I love that. That's so nice. I usually, when someone's like, I'm going to tell you a story about a mental asylum. You don't think there's going to be a sweet part It's like, oh, great. Well, that's kind of why I wanted to tell it was to, you know, get rid of that stigma. Dr. Zeller. Except keep that stigma because Dr. Zeller is the only one, apparently, who thought these people were human. I mean, amen. So keep the stigma. (laughs) It actually sucks. But it was 
I just excited me to be able to tell a kind of happy story. And as I said before, I didn't even know it was a happy story because I was just raised on knowing the Barnville Asylum is haunted. Yeah. Yeah, And go because it's creepy, which it totally was. And I get why all the ghost hunters go. But it's so fun to learn the history and be like, wait, you guys were kind of cool. But there you go. I love it. What do you have to tell me? Well, sorry, I had I like swallowed, but it was hard. It was like not a good swallow. It wasn't like, ah, refreshing. It was like one of those swallows where you swallow and then you're like, ow, why? So <laughs> I figured I would cover my all-time favorite topic and something that Illinois is surprisingly enriched with, and that's aliens, Lauren. That's right, bitch. <laughs> I'm sorry for cursing okay. everybody, but it was needed I'm sorry for, for yelling bitch. I woke up my child. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> so I did not know this before I went in. Like, I've had my own weird alien UFO encounters in Illinois, but I didn't think it was a hotbed yeah. for activity, but it is. So you you'll never find Illinois very high up on the list of the amount of UFO sightings per year or decade or what have you. Mm-hmm. We rank like in the 30s usually okay. for number of UFO sightings a year. Which isn't bad. But That's still a lot. <laughs> no, it's not bad. But, you know, there's a lot more states in front of for us sure. than behind us. But six of the 10 most corroborated UFO sightings in U.S. history have occurred in Illinois. Whoa, What? Six of the ten. Six of the ten? <laughs> How did I not know this? Well, and, and most corroborated as in most witnesses to a single event or even most credible witnesses to a single event. Okay. Tell me more. Well, this information was kind of brought to the public's attention back in 2015, and naturally a bunch of skeptics went to work at discrediting it. For example, a lot of people blamed O'Hare Airport It is the busiest airport in the United States. It's like the Midwest hub. But if so, O'Hare must be up to something really weird because there was no such correlation at four other super busy airports in the country. Oh, okay. So it doesn't necessarily pan out then, that theory. Okay, okay. It's like, try again, guys. (laughs) Give us another one. Well, before I go over some of the most famous UFO events in Illinois, I have to mention that my hometown, Centralia, has had a very interesting event in the 60s. Ooh. And I have to give a shout out to Morgan Taylor for sending me this newspaper clipping last year that started this research. Um, yes, Morgan. I didn't know anything about it. So Thank you. One event uh, in Centralia, this was back in the 60s, it was strange enough even to attract the attention of J. Allen Hynek and Project Blue Book. Okay. Which is very famous. Unfortunately, it was during a period of flopping by Hynek. Hynek, for anyone who doesn't know, he was an astronomer who worked with the United States Air Force on several UFO projects, the most famous of them being Project Blue Book. And he's the guy who came up with the close encounter classifications. Ah, so that's of the first so kind, cool. of the third kind. Yeah. Wow, I love that. So when he started in the 40s, this is just a little aside. Um, when he started in the 40s on Project Sign, he was crazy skeptical and thought UFOs were a joke. And yeah. then in the 50s, he started to question his beliefs because of all these places that he was going and all these witnesses he was talking to and all the evidence that was left. And he actually started resenting the Air Force and their reaction to UFOs because their thoughts were basically, none of these are credible, no matter what. Yep. They're just going to shut you down. Yeah. Just like whatever they say, it's swamp gas, it's a weather balloon, like it's never anything credible. 
But right. until the mid-60s, he was still echoing the Air Force and saying there are no UFOs, reports can be explained, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he admitted later on in his life that he was essentially a professional debunker. His job was to debunk and only to debunk. Ah. And unfortunately, that's where he was um, at the time when Centralia and the surrounding towns were put onto Project Blue Book's files. So that's a bummer. It wasn't until the 70s that he openly spoke out against the Air Force and their handling of UFO cases. Yeah. Well, good that he finally spoke out. Yeah, it's good that he finally flopped one way or the other, but I wish he had been more open to it when he was in my hometown because I would have liked to know like what he actually thought. So I'll tell yes. you exactly what they said uh, before they left, and it's ridiculous. So <sighs> essentially what had happened was over a period of seven or eight days, dozens of people reported experiences with UFOs in Fairfield, Mount Vernon, and Centralia, Illinois, and this was in August of 1963. And reports came in from all kinds of sources. There were farmers and police officers. Um, One story was an 18-year-old named Ronnie Austin, and he and his girlfriend were chased home in their car by a strange light that would be above and then dart down within 50 feet of the car and then go back up and then come back down. Like, at one point, it was so close to his car, his truck, that he thought it was in the bed of his truck. Whoa. Yeah. thanks. So when he got home... He ran inside and he was literally hysterical. And his father was like, I've never seen my son behave this way. He was terrified. And his dad, he told his dad what happened. His dad went to the window and looked outside and they could still see the light, the object hovering in the neighborhood really low. So his dad called the police. And uh, by the time the police got out there, the light was higher up. Once they arrived, but it was still much bigger and brighter than a star. Like, it was still obvious right. that it wasn't just, like, another star. It's in the something sky. different, for sure. Yeah. The same light, described as a fireball as big as a wash tub, Ooh. showed up again about seven days later. Uh, it, it was seen periodically uh, in the in-between days, but this was just the next, like, big event. Mm-hmm. Um, it hovered over Harry L. Bishop's house, and he was the former mayor of Mount Vernon. Oh, wow. And... He said to the the newspaper that published this, I could not believe my eyes. I first saw the object following the route of Centralia Road. When it got over my house, it stopped, and I could see it very clearly. It was white, but then it turned bright red. And even though it was crazy bright, it did not light up the neighborhood at all. Like, the streets weren't lit up. Even oh. though it was, like, pretty low and really bright. Yeah, like, it should have lit up everything. Yeah, the, at least, like, the tree line, but it didn't. You'd think. He, he also stated that it gave off a slight humming sound. He said that the light then moved west and went out of sight for a moment, like someone had turned the light off. Hmm. And then it, like, blinked back on. It, like, reappeared further west and was moving at a high rate of speed. And he, at this time, when he was watching it from his window, he didn't go outside. He was like watching it from his window. He called the neighbors and he was like, look outside, please tell me I'm not insane. And uh, at least six people witnessed this particular UFO. And in total, they probably watched the light for about 10 to 15 minutes. Wow. Which is nuts. That is crazy town. Well, Project Blue Book came to town to investigate and talk to all the witnesses. And they determined that the UFO was in fact Jupiter. Okay. That's right. 
Jupiter I is what they watched. I Traverse don't the sky. Think that's hover correct. over their homes. <laughs> chase them in their right. truck. That's not what Jupiter does. No, Jupiter was giving off the strange buzzing sound. False. Yeah. So thanks for nothing, guys. Yeah. Geez. Um. So that was my little hometown one, but. Illinois UFO sightings go way, 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 way back, all the way back to before there were even planes. In the late 1800s, actually, there was a string of strange sightings all across the United States, and they were known as mystery airships. Hundreds of thousands of reports, and one of the last states that they were seen in was Illinois, and there were probably thousands of reports in Illinois alone. Yeah. Dang! I know. It was crazy. I'm actually, I think I'm going to talk about the mystery airships on our bonus episode this month. Um, Oh, yes. Because it wasn't Illinois specific. Like, they were seen in Illinois a lot. But, like, it was all over. And uh, it was before there were planes. It was before there were blimps in the United States. So, So like, what could be flying? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I love so, that they were last seen in Illinois, though. Yeah, I think technically they were last seen in Indiana for like a day, but they were in Illinois for like a week. Hey, I don't know. go us. They liked it here. <laughs> so uh, as for more recently, there's been several cases. One big one took place on July 4th, 1997, where thousands of Illinois residents reported a craft in the sky during fireworks displays. Oh, wow. People from all over, it was like St. Clair, Belleville, Collinsville, they all described it the exact same way. And it was like, you know, people ranging from like uh, a small family setting off fireworks in their yard to uh, there was like a, a 600 people at the drive-in theater Oh wow! Jeez. that were there for a fireworks show. There was uh, about a thousand people at um, uh, Southwestern mm-hmm. that were watching a fireworks show and they all reported seeing it. And um, they all described it the exact same way. Bright white light with a bluish tint. And obviously skeptics tried to say it was uh, the fireworks. But like, especially people from a small town in the Midwest. We know what a firework looks like. (laughs) We know the difference between a firework and an airship that we can Yeah. We know what a successful firework looks like. We know what a dud looks like. We know what an accident looks like. Fireworks, everybody. Yeah. Fireworks are in our white trash DNA. We know fireworks. We're not going to question us. Another interesting one was in 1999. The crew of an airliner coming into Chicago was allegedly burned by a UFO. They said they were coming in around nine nine o'clock at night. The pilot and co-pilot were watching a display of what looked like the Northern Lights. So they were really weird. They just thought it was like a mirage of some kind. Uh As they were like coming in for a landing, the lights started to stretch above and over the aircraft. And then there was a short, uh, like a short pulse of green light. And then that green light turned into a bright ball, which quickly approached the plane. Uh, from the north and the members of the cockpit crew experienced a sensation on their faces as if they had been sunburned um excuse me yeah and as soon as the green light went away the sunburn feeling went with it but the next morning uh two of the crew members the skin on their faces were red and sore oh jeez so they actually got burned by something. Yeah, they actually like something happened to their skin. But okay, they everyone, it was like the pilot, the co-pilot, and there were two other people. So I don't know if they were, I don't know who else would be up there. But yeah, um, that experienced this and they all had the exact same story. 
also at O'Hare, this was really recent. It was November of 2006. I guess it's not really recent, but I don't know what year it is. (laughs) What day is it? (laughs) What day is it? I don't know. (laughs) Today I was talking to someone and they were like, I'm going to be 35. And I was like, I don't, I honestly don't know if I'm 32 or 33. Yeah. I forget my age all the time. And same with Alex's. I told him he was 34 the other day and he's like, no, I'm 33. And I was like, well, I should know that, but it all just goes blank <laughs> but after I 30. Don't. <laughs> and 2006 feels like it was yesterday, but I was a junior in high school. So yeah, truly, I graduated in 2006. On? So anyway, so this was also at O'Hare in 2006. <laughs> it was a very early morning. And a gray metallic saucer-like object was spotted hovering above Chicago O'Hare International Airport. And uh, at least 12 United Airlines employees spotted the object and filed reports with United. And officials at the airline say they have no knowledge of the incident and the Federal Aviation Administration did not investigate. Why? Why would you not investigate? (sighs) I know. So... Hate this people. one's a, the most famous one in Illinois. It's one of the most legit UFO sightings. Um, this case is known. It was in the year 2000. The year 2000. <laughs> this case is known as the St. Clair Triangle or the Southern Illinois Incident. Okay. So on January 5th, 2000, at around 4 a.m., a trucker named Melvin Knoll was returning from a delivery and stopped by his mini golf course in Highland, Illinois, which is closed in the winter. Okay. And when he got out of his truck, he noticed a very bright star in the northeastern sky. And he didn't really give it more thought than like, that star sure is bright. And then he went inside. Everything looked good. So a few minutes later, he returned to his truck. And at this point, he noticed the bright star was moving in his direction and now looked like it was part of a giant triangle. Or I'm sorry, he initially said rectangle. He said it was a rectangle about the size of a football field. What? It got close enough to him that he was able to see that it was very tall and it had two floors with windows that emitted a very bright light. Hmm. He also spotted a number of dimmer red lights on the bottom. The object was black or dark gray and he described it almost like a two-story house in the sky. That's as big as a football field. Yeah. What? He watched it. This is it. wild. It's nuts. And it gets crazier. He watched it completely silently move across the sky before it vanished. And he was able to observe it for over five minutes. And it was close. It wasn't like something that was like far away. And he was like, what is that? I wish I had my binoculars. It was like it like flew over him, basically. So uh-huh. Noel immediately drove to the Highland Police Station And he almost didn't go inside because he was like, oh, my God, no one is going to believe this. They're going to call me crazy. Yada, yada, yada. But he decided to. Yeah, I'm going to be told to go home and stop drinking. But he decided to take a chance and hope that whoever was on duty was at least open minded enough to call the neighboring town and see if they saw it. And the dispatcher in Highland was pretty skeptical, but agreed to put in a call to the police in, in Lebanon, which I know is Lebanon, but in Illinois, we Welcome say Lebanon. Welcome to Illinois, everybody, because everybody says <laughs> Lebanon. <laughs> Lebanon. And he asked them to be on the lookout for anything unusual. Well, Officer Ed Barton was the, the officer that received the call around 4.15 a.m., and he asked the dispatcher if he was joking. <laughs> he also <laughs> asked if the truck driver had multiple DUIs on record. 
The dispatcher said no and told him where he might be able to see it. So Officer Barton, he takes off to go northeast where this guy said that the ship might be. And uh, a short distance away, he saw two large white lights in the sky. So he guns it to try and catch up to get a better look. And as Mm -hmm. he's watching the lights um, from his driver's side window, as he's driving, so that's probably not safe, but he saw that the two lights seemed to merge into one and the object seemed to stop in midair and then start moving again. And he was thinking... Oh, it's just like an aircraft having technical problems. We're probably going to have an issue soon. It might even crash. Like, I don't know. Right. But he turned off his lights and his car radio to try and hear the craft. Because he was close enough that if it was like a plane or helicopter or whatever, he'd be able to hear it. Yeah. But he said it was completely silent. So as the object came closer, he realized it was a massive triangle-shaped craft And at each corner was a bright white light and the lights appeared to be pointing straight down. And he was also able to see the small blinking red light. So he described it the exact same way. The ship moved closer and completely blocked out the sky. He could not see the sky. That's how big this thing is. And at this point, Barton is out of his car. And I imagine him with like his mouth wide open and a cigar hanging out like in the movies. (laughs) (laughs) The cigar might even tumble out. Exactly. (laughs) And he said that the enormous football field link craft couldn't have been more than a thousand feet from the ground. And yet it was 100% silent. That makes no sense. None. Then the craft... (laughs) turns to go southwest but it didn't bank like a car or a plane it just stopped and rotated remaining completely level and took off so barton scrambled for his radio and called in to describe what he was seeing and he said that when he made the call the aircraft moved faster it like hauled ass and shot away from him by the time he finished his call he told the dispatcher that he estimated the craft should be about eight miles away above the town of shiloh illinois so (laughs) Dispatch calls Shiloh and gets Officer David Martin, who was like, is this a joke? Has he been drinking? And of course, they were like, no, it's real. We've already done this. Just prepare yourself. And he immediately saw it. So he radioed back and said he could see something. And he described the white lights and the red flashing one. It corroborated the first two reports. Um, And he was saying, like, you can look up the transcripts of these calls. They're kind of eerie. He was just like, oh, my God, it's huge. And like, they're they're just scared to death. After looking at the lights for a while, he was able to finally make out the massive body of the ship. And he said it was a wide triangle or arrowhead type shape. And he chased after it, also rolling his window down and hearing no sound. But the craft picked up speed and moved out of the area. And by this time, all the weird radio transmissions were getting the attention of other officers on early morning duty. One of them was Officer Craig Stevens, a cop in Milstad, Illinois, who was able to track down the craft as well. And he was the only one who reported a sound, but he said that it was a low decibel buzzing sound that he could barely hear, but mostly felt, which sounds like infrasound to me. Yes. We've talked about that before. Sounds just like infrasound. Yeah. No other officers made their reports. um, And being that it was like four something in the morning, there weren't many other people coming forward as eyewitnesses. But... Mm -hmm. It is interesting. It's an interesting case because, one, these guys obviously weren't communicating with each other um, Mm -hmm. before this night. And people are curious as to how something that massive was able to cruise through towns that were like a mile away from Scott Air 
Force Base, uh-huh. like without them knowing about it. Right. Um, the base later stated they knew nothing about the large ship, which is like literally impossible unless you know it is an alien craft and they have like cloaking abilities or something but yeah they um, would had to have known about it had to have known so they said they knew nothing nothing about it which made people think oh like it obviously was some sort of military test plane but i actually i've known people who have worked at scott air force base and i literally reached out to them to them there are no test planes there they don't do crazy military test plane stuff Okay. They're just so an Air Force this is not base. them. As for a hoax, like I said, it definitely didn't seem like the cops from four different towns came together to try and fake a UFO sighting. No, that's too crazy. Yeah, and also the cops were pretty unwilling to talk about it afterwards. Like, they talked to some yeah. reporters and ufologists, but as soon as they started getting backlash in their departments, they became pretty tight-lipped. So you'd think if it was a hoax, they'd want to, like, I don't know, get something out of it? Right, they'd keep like it going fame. for the attention, yeah. but... No, that doesn't seem to match up. No, the official report from the Air Force was that it was a blimp. Okay, <laughs> Which, the Air Force like, needs to get out of here. Here's the thing, like, one, why? Two, how? Three, blimps aren't silent. They sound like airplanes. No, we would be able to hear them. And yeah. also, you're just wrong. This wasn't a blimp in any way, shape, or form. Just yeah. hush. Four, oh I don't think so many officers would get riled up over a blimp. No. I think maybe one of them would have been like, guys, it's a blimp. Right. Someone so. would have said that. They knew it was not a blimp. That looked way too insane. Yeah. Oh, boy. So, yeah, there's a ton of uh, major UFO activity in Illinois. <laughs> I love that so much. Our state is alien friendly, everybody. Apparently. My God. That's so cool and creepy all in one. Yes. 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 I can't do the squeak, but I or the whistle, but I try. Yes, <laughs> yes. yes. No, nope, it's over. <laughs> some days Yours I can, I got so it perfect. Uh, some days I have it really good. I was in a play once in college where I had to use that voice. It was like a clown show, so I played several different characters. I played like a bank robber from Boston. I played like a ballerina. I played like an old lady, um, nice. and I played this uh, tiger salesman. Oh. But I was also like an old man. I had like a cane. I was really wobbly. And I so came in. So you had that little whistle. Yeah. So I was like, taggers, taggers for sale. Like I tried to put as many S's in as possible. I was like, taggers of all shapes and sizes. <laughs> That's but genius. It was a play. So I had to, I had to get my whistle down so that it could be heard by like, everyone in the theater sure so i used to be fucking awesome at it and now it's just it's sort of there it's weird to me that you're down on your whistle because to me it still sounds incredible no i used to be able to like send it um you want to hear another weird tale um yeah (laughs) okay this one takes place in macomb (gasps) which we discussed a little bit but i know you don't know a ton about no Um, i'm excited about the story because it's so bizarre so macomb i knew a little bit about the story because i had a ton of friends that went to western which is the college in macomb and i went and visited and partied all the time because they just had better stuff to do than isu did in bloomington so i was there a lot and i had heard reference to this story but man i did not fully know what went down so i'm gonna take you back everybody to 1948 after a pretty gnarly divorce 
daughter of two very spiteful parents named Wynette McNeil. I think it's Wynette. W-A-N-E-T. How would you yeah, say that name? Wynette. Yeah. Because I wouldn't say Wanit like Janet. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure we're on the same page because I was like, Wanit is not a name. Okay. So Wynette McNeil. Her and her father and her brother moved to her uncle's farm after the parents' divorce, and it was called the Willie Farm. Wynette was unhappy and described as by family and friends as being incredibly disturbed and emotions constantly running high all through that summer that they moved to the farm. She was just a very unhappy, angry person. She was also a teenage girl who had just been ripped from her world in Bloomington, Illinois, to move to Macomb with her, in with her family members at the Willie Farm that she didn't know that well. So I'm sitting here defending her because, hell yeah, you're going to be mad. Like, yeah. When you're a teenager, you hate everything already, and then you have to move to a new town with your dad and not be close and to your mom. And make all new friends. And All new friends. Yeah, and you don't want to go live at this farm. You're pissed. No. So any teenage girl would be upset. It's already the hardest time in your life, and then you have to do this. So Charles Willie, residents of the farm were Charles Willie, the uncle, his wife, his brother-in-law, and then Wynette, her father, Arthur McNeil, and his son, Wynette's brother, Arthur Jr., who was eight at the time. So it's her little brother. And Wynette had recently just turned 13. So again, like the most impossible time in your life. Then, shortly after they move in, the mysterious fires begin. August 7th, 1948, the first fire started. It was a small brown spot that appeared on the very poorly attached, pretty shoddy wallpaper that was in the living room of the Willie farmhouse. The first spot was followed by another and then several more. They just kept popping up, brown spot after brown spot. The spots would appear, they would spread out several inches, they would smolder, and then when they became hot enough, the spots burst into flames. That is insane. Yeah, for no reason. They were just appearing, bursting into flames. Then it gets even crazier. The brown spots occurred day after day. This wasn't just a one-time random thing. Day after day, it's day like, week. It's like our is our farm built over hell? Like, right. why is this happening? Is Satan himself beneath us? <laughs> what is going on? So the brown spots are appearing day after day for a week, leaving the, com- the family completely confused and scared. So Charles Willie called his neighbors to come over and investigate because he's like, I just have to get more eyes on this. Like, hello, what? And the neighbors would arrive and be just as confused, just as lost. People are coming over looking at this saying, I have zero clue. So friends and neighbors are coming over to look at this, but some of them are even staying the night because they're like, we need more support on this. There's so many of these brown spots bursting into flames that we need all hands on deck. So some people are coming and staying with the family on the property, crowding into the house, sleeping on the floor, just in an attempt to help keep watch over the spots and the fires. Pans and buckets are filled with water and placed all over the house so that each time one of the fires breaks out, they can quickly douse it in water and put it out. But The fires kept popping up in front of all of these startled witnesses, and word spread, so even more people came over to the house. Basically, everyone in Macomb was coming over at this time. Finally, they call the fire department. Fire Chief Fred Wilson arrives, and, you know, they're finally looking for comfort. They're like, hey, this is going to seem crazy, but you're the fire chief, so hopefully you can figure this out. Nope. He arrives. (laughs) He arrives, sees this, and is like, um... Hello? Um, I, I've never I, seen that before in my entire career. 
anything like this ever. He's just as freaked out as everybody else. He has no idea what's going on. So he has no help for them other than to say, yeah, keep dousing these in water and making sure they don't grow. But I I don't know what's causing that. So oh my God. in the days that followed, the fires start to appear outside of the house as well on the front porch. Curtains were ignited in several of the rooms. An ironing board burst into flames out of nowhere. And Yikes. a cloth that was lying on a bed burned so hot that it turned into ash. Just straight up turned into ash with no reasoning. Oh my god. Chief Wilson, again, keeps saying, I've never seen anything like this before. So Charles Willie contacts his insurance company and their investigators now decide to come out and help the fire department. They're confused. They have no idea what to do about it. Then Deputy State Fire Marshal comes out because he, he was contacted by Chief Wilson. He comes to the farm. He's just as confused. And he was quoted as saying, nobody has ever heard or seen anything like this. But I promise I saw it with my own eyes. That was his official statement. Great. <laughs> so there is no comfort, no help in any of this. Just crazy fires. In the week that followed, from August 7th to August 14th, more than 200 fires oh broke out at the house. Oh, God. On average of nearly 20 fires a day. And finally, on Saturday, August 14th, one of the blazes raged so out of control that before the Macomb Fire Department could even arrive with their trucks, the entire Willie farmhouse burned down to the ground. It was so fast that nothing could be done. Luckily, everybody got out in time, but it burned to the ground. Charles Willie decided to make a tent shelter for he and his wife several hundred feet away while um, McNeil and his two children, Arthur and Wynette, moved into the garage. The next day, while the Willies were milking their cows in the barnyard, their barn suddenly burst into flames and the building crumbled to the ground. Oh my God. (laughs) This poor family, though, also. I know. It's sort of like... It's not... You You can't blame the McNeils because they just moved in, but you're also like, hey, this didn't happen before you got here. Uh, So two days later, on a Tuesday, several fires broke out on the walls of the Milk House, which was another building. They had several buildings on the property. Um, And at the time, it was being used as a kitchen and a dining room for the family because, you know, they're just trying to use whatever they have at this point. So that burned down. Then that Thursday morning, a couple days later, there were two fi- two more fires, and a box that was filled with newspapers was found burning in the chicken house. A few minutes later, Mrs. Willie opened a cupboard door in the milk house and discovered more newspapers were smoldering on a shelf inside as well. And there had been no one else in the building. No one had gone in there all day except for her. The cabinet had not even been opened. It was locked. There was no logical reason for the newspapers to catch fire. She had no idea how it happened. Again, just complete shock. Where are these fires coming from? Later that same day, at about 6 p.m., the farm's second barn caught fire and the blaze burned. I know, it doesn't stop. The blaze burned so hot that the entire building was destroyed in just less than half an hour. That is so freaking quick for a building to burn down. Firefighters who arrived on the scene were unable to even get close because it was blazing so high and it was so hot. Only six small outhouses remained on the entire farm, so the family decided to escape to a nearby vacant house, and the fires continued. The United States Air Force, as we just spoke about, got involved. And guess what? I don't have good news about them. Oh, wow. What did they say? It's Mars? Big surprise. They suggested that the fire was probably caused by some sort of radiation from the Russians. 
And that was all they said. They offered no assistance, and then they left. (laughs) That was it. Cool. Thanks, guys. We'll just keep fucking risking our lives just being people in the world. 100%. They offered no help to the fire department. Was this during the Cold War? What year was this? 1948. Yeah. Okay. And they were just like, it's the Russians, you guys. That's it. And then they left. And that was it. You'd think that if that was the case, that they would be like, we should keep an eye on this. Yeah. Because we're going to stick so around and about, monitor. You know, the Russians all the time. Exactly. But no, but no just they were good just luck. Like, no, it's fine. This was some radiation. You guys are good. Hope you figure it out. So they leave. No, again, nobody can help them. These poor freaking people. Oh, my God. By the end of the following week, the farm was swarming with spectators people coming to check it out like of course everybody in macomb is like what the hell is going on so they're coming to check it out reporters curiosity seekers everybody over a thousand people came to the farm on august 22nd alone like just on this one day there were over a thousand people on this farm where that <laughs> had never seen more than like macomb 10 was people. probably yeah. like mm, seven thousand people <laughs> I know. Like, it wasn't that big of a town anyway, and a thousand people came to this farm. So people were starting to pose their theories. Everybody's getting excited. What the heck is going on? People start to say it could be radio waves, underground gas pockets, possibly aliens, possibly UFOs, somebody getting involved from another planet. We don't know. People are just getting pumped. They're trying to think of everything. The authorities, however, are looking for the most down-to-earth explanation possible. So they're like, it's clearly arson. Somebody is starting these. Even though several people watch these fires start with no one being around. But that's the authorities just saying, we have to solve this. We have to bring peace to Macomb, so we have to find something. So on August 30th, they decide to publicly announce that the mystery was solved and that the arsonist was Wynette McNeil, the 13-year-old girl, because mm-hmm. they had brought her in for questioning. And after hours and hours of putting the pressure onto her, they somehow convinced her to confess to all of these fires. Yeah. She well, said that she was... Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, we've, we've seen the documentaries. We've seen this before. We know how it goes. Yeah, you can be coerced into saying a whole lot of things. And this poor young girl, again, she's 13. She's already in the hardest time. But they're talking to her for hours, and she eventually confessed to it. And they claimed that she was starting the fires with kitchen matches when no one was looking, even though this, again, ignores all of the witness reports of the fire starting out of nowhere, including on the ceiling that Wynette could not even reach. But... Apparently, this little girl had some extraordinary skills that, and an endless supply of matches, clearly, <laughs> to start all of this. And she was just able to start all of these. Yeah, fires. what about so, the locked cabinet? Yeah, 100%. It, none of it makes Ugh, any sense. Okay. She also stated in her interview that she was extremely unhappy. She hated the farm. She really wanted to see her mother. She didn't have any pretty clothes, which. I'm not even going to judge her for that because, again, she was a 13-year-old girl. That's yeah. what you want then. She said that she was incredibly angry, incredibly disturbed. And she, yeah, she was telling them how angry she was. And she did say she started the fires. But it was the authorities that came up with the theory that she was just using matches from the kitchen. She never admitted to that. She said she was starting the fires and that she was angry. But she never said 
how she was starting the fires. They came up with that theory. Mm. And a lot of the time, So maybe again, she was starting the fires with her mind. That's right, Ashley. <laughs> so this explanation pleased the authorities and the public and whatever they had to put it out. But, of course, there's the weirdos of the world, just like us and the paranormal investigators who came to investigate the land and read all of the evidence, read all of the stories, and they all came forward saying this is 100% an event of a poltergeist, which, as we've talked about on the show before, poltergeists a lot of times are attracted to teenage girls because of the, the hormones, the high emotion, the anger, the, the outbursts that we all have, the mood swings, that a poltergeist could maybe attach to a person of that age and of that kind of imbalance that you're having with your emotions. So... The best theory, and the theory that I 100% believe, because nothing else makes sense, is that Wynette absolutely was starting these fires, but she was starting it simply with her mind and her anger. And when she looked at something and didn't like it, she was able to start a fire just with the power of her ferocity, I don't know, her anger, her emotion. So... That is what I believe, and that's what, of course, a lot of the paranormal community grabbed onto, because truly, none of the evidence makes any sense. Nothing adds up. Um, Wynette was taken to Chicago for a special examination at the Illinois Juvenile Hospital, but she was found to be completely normal. She was found to be sane by Dr. Sophie Schroeder, who was a psychiatrist, and she was quoted as saying, she's a nice little kid caught in the middle of a broken home, nothing more. So she was turned back over to her family, but decided everybody decided that it was better if she lived with her grandmother and spent the rest of her teenage years untroubled by anything going on at the farm. So she lived with her grandmother and no more mysterious brown spots happened. No more fires. She was just in a better environment. I don't know if it's because of what her grandmother was able to provide, but something changed and the rest of her teenage years were completely normal. Um, The insurance company did pay Charles Willie for the damage done to his home and the farm and the farmhouse, and most things got rebuilt. Um, And Arthur McNeil and his son, Arthur Jr., actually moved back in with the Willies for a time, but eventually moved out of state, and the Willies moved as well. Um, No more fires were started once Wynette was gone. Fire officials completely abandoned the case after the so-called confession was cleared and the mystery was solved. But for a lot of them, they continued to spread the word that it was nothing that they had ever seen before. And they believe another force was involved and that it wasn't arson. Even Fire Chief Fred Wilson talked about the case for years and years, even after he retired, and said it's something I've never seen. And I still believe to this day that it was something unexplainable beyond all human comprehension that took place. The case is still listed as unexplained today, for the most part. Again, With the majority of the community, everyone still thinks it's just an unsolved mystery. But police, if you talk to them, will say, nope, it's solved. Little girl is just getting into the kitchen matches. But we know better. (laughs) I was going to say, poltergeist, um, uh, most people, myself included, don't even believe that there's a spirit involved. It's simply the fact that we're made up of energy and, you know especially a person with and you know I've told you about that that test that I've seen done where they sit in front of a a camera that that reads 
your energy. Right, and it shows the energy when they yeah. leave the chair. And they show the yeah. energy when they leave the chair. It's and, a complete and if, if energy it's a, thing. Yeah, if it's in like a, a highly emotional state, the energy lingers longer. And if you're in a very emotional state and you are a teenager, your hormones are raging. You're a monster yeah. just in yeah. general. And you have to go through something like that and you're being, you know, uprooted and you're being and you have an anger that's directed. It's directed yeah. at the farm. She, she didn't doesn't want to be at the there. farm. I absolutely believe she harnessed the power to do this simply with her body. But I do not think she was using the kitchen matches. There was something else. I feel like there's a way so. for fire officials to be able to tell if if a fire was started with a match too. Maybe not in 1948, but um, right. Like today, I know it speaks I to the times, but tell how. Yeah, I agree. But even at that time, I'm sure. Yes, you couldn't tell as much in 1948. But the fact that the fire chief himself was like, "I have never seen anything like this." I don't have words for it. It's yeah, very I would telling. listen to the like, authority on fire. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so that's it's just a wild story. I cannot believe that how many f- so fires were started. I know. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, man. Um, well, I'm going back to Chicago. Chicago. So my whole theme, basically all my stories are, are uh, UFO and ET related. And this one is about a man named John Otto, O-T-T-O. And okay. um, John Otto was a member of the Detroit Flying Saucer Club. And he was a, <laughs> no, he was a UFO enthusiast and lecturer who specifically was interested in space communication. Otto was a believer in the use of radio waves to communicate with extraterrestrials. I mean, we send messages out in radio waves all the time. That's the the packages that we send out are made up of radio waves. Radio waves, for anyone who doesn't know, are a natural part of our world. Uh, We just learned how to harness it like electricity uh, into, you know, a modern day radio and television. So on November 28th, 1954... John Otto teamed up with radio host Jim Mills of WGN Chicago, and at 11.15 p.m., they broadcast this message. This is Jim Mills. I invite you and those in flying discs listening to this program to stand by for a message from the friendly people of Earth. We desire to communicate with you. Therefore, at exactly 11.25 p.m., Chicago Earth Time, we will hold a 15-second period of silence for you to cut in and speak to us through the transmitter. Now, Earth listeners, please, if possible, maintain complete silence at 11.25 and report anything you see or hear to me, Jim Mills, WGN Chicago, by letter or postcard. Thank you. Because uh, it's 1954. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> at 11.25, Mills announced come in outer space and the microphones in the studio were shut off in anticipation of a message from another world as soon as mills and Otto went back on the air the switchboard lit up with callers that had experienced Ooh. something at the time um, and there's several different ones people saying they had electrical weird electrical things happen in their home some people that said they heard uh, whispering during the transmission but Among these were two sisters, they were spinster sisters that lived together in Chicago, Marie and Mildred Mayer, who claimed they tape recorded the 
silence. And they oh. recorded something that sounded almost like Santa's sleigh bells. Hmm. Otto made arrangements to meet with the sisters and made a copy of their tape that he did go on to later play on uh, other radio programs, including his own WGN show, Out of This World. Not much came about with, like, interpreting the sounds, the sleigh bells. Okay. The next year, in 1955, a publication called Journal of Space Flight featured a story on the Mayer sisters and their recording, which aroused the interest of the CIA's OSI, the Office of Scientific Investigation. The sisters were visited by a couple of, quote, Air Force officers who confiscated the tape in the interest of national security. So in, oh in 1957, two years later, UFO investigator Leon Davidson wrote to the Air Force Intelligence Branch requesting information on the tape, and he was told that it had been forwarded to the proper authorities. Eventually, they found out that the two men that came and got the tape were not Air Force officers, but CIA agents. Huh. And it was actually Funny. the CIA who investigated the case. So, Leon Davidson went to the CIA and wore them down until he finally got someone on the phone. And when they were pressed for their analysis of the recording, the CIA responded that the sound on the tape was Morse code from a U.S. radio outpost. Oh, and uh, they didn't return the tape because they threw it out because they determined it was nothing. So they just trashed it. Okay. Sure. When John Otto... Yeah, <laughs> fine. Yeah, sure. When John Otto looked into this, he knew it was a cover-up because the signal was not on a band used for government transmissions. And also, it was not possible for an AM radio to pick up such a signal. Mm -hmm. Now, I can't for the life of me find the sleigh bell recording on the internet, so if anyone ever finds it, please send it my way. Uh, in my search, I did find out that the drummer for Limp Biscuits' name is John Otto, which Shut up, is really? nothing anyone ever needed to know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we did. Because I would type in, that like, John Otto sounds, and it was, like, drummer for Limp Biscuit, And I was like, what is happening? Well, yes. Gosh darn it, what's going on? <laughs> I think that's an amazing piece of information, and I thank you for sharing it. Yeah, you're welcome. So that's my short little story about John Otto and the time they tried to contact aliens on the radio. I was telling Joe this story earlier, and he was laughing. So he was like, wow, 15 seconds. I was like, I mean, it was the radio. Yeah, but it's good. In 1955. <laughs> so you know the boss was like, you can have 15 seconds, of not a second more. Right. That's just how it was. Yeah. <laughs> you can't be like, we're going off yeah. air for a minute. They'd be like, do you know how right. many advertisements? Like how much money I could make in one minute of airtime? No, you're not. Right. You get you 10 get the seconds. smallest amount of time. <laughs> yeah. Good luck with that. Um. So that was interesting. No, that's though. great. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, that's really crazy. I like it. I have another tale. Okay. We have talked on listener ghost stories about haunted colleges before. Mm -hmm. So this is another haunted college, Yay! but it's one we haven't talked about. <laughs> I'm going to talk about Rockford University. Rockford, Illinois' first college was established back in 1847 and was called the Rockford Female Seminary. Oh. And it housed many very brilliant women, including a woman named Jane Addams, who would go on to fame as a social activist and co-founder of Chicago's Whole House, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. She was a graduate... Who? She was a graduate <laughs> of the seminary in 1881, 
1892, the school became known as Rockford College, which remained a predominantly female school until 1958. And then in 1964, the campus was moved from its home along the river to its current location on State Street, and it is now called Rockford University, which was the name change just in 2014, so not too long ago. So that's a little history on the school. It's been around for a while. It has a lot of history. It's seen a lot of people. It's had some drama. It's had it all. It is believed that no less than three buildings are home to some spirits or some any kind of strange paranormal activity, along with a famous memorial arch on the campus that also has some activity. And it was built using the original materials from the Rock River campus mm. before it moved. Okay. I was like, that's a weird thing to be haunted, an archway. But I then know, an arch. I thought about the, remember our New York story, the um, arch, uh, it wasn't Central Park. I don't remember where it was. It was uh, the arch that ended up having a bunch of bodies buried underneath it that they didn't know about. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Yes, that nobody even knew about. Yeah. yeah. You never know. Strange items can be haunted. So here at... Rockford University. There is a place called the Blanche Walker Burpee Center, the Adams Arch, which I was talking about, and the Clark's Art Center. That is where the biggest phenomenons are. You hear voices, there's moving objects, there's apparitions, there's all kinds of things at these different buildings. So the most haunted one is the Clark Art Center, which contains two theaters. This is where the theater department did everything, the Cheek Theater and the Maddox Theater. This is the most haunted area for sure. It's where everyone reports the most activity from investigators to students to staff, everybody. So first of all, there are all these ancient frescoes, which I had to look up. I didn't know what a fresco was, but it's a painting done on plaster or stone, some type of mural. So there's these ancient frescoes hanging in the hallways leading to Maddox Theater that are depicting figures in stages of celebration. They're usually playing instruments looking happy. They have little cherub, angelic faces. They look joyful for the most part. But people have reported that when they walk past, they see a change of expression to something more menacing and angry. And even members who have gone to shows at these theaters have said that they felt they were being followed by these frescoes as they were walking in, that the faces were following them, looking over their shoulders, changing their expressions, the whole shebang. Hate it. Hate it <laughs> hate so it. much. <laughs> hate all of it. Maddox Theater also, in its little lobby area, has artifacts from Africa that are super creepy, as well as a collection of Hopi Indian Kachina dolls, Kachina dolls. And then they also have these African artifacts as well. And for many years, all of these things were locked in a storage room before they were brought out. And even back when they were in the room, there were always reports of heavy, ominous feelings surrounding the room, whether you were just outside the door or actually inside. And many staff members and students, if they ever had to go in and grab something, said they would have to bring someone else with them because it was that scary and no one wanted to be in there alone. So people hated when they were in the storage room, didn't know if it was the storage room that freaked them out or the artifacts. But once everything was brought out to the lobby and those paintings started lining the hall and those feelings still were present, everyone realized it may have something to do with the artifacts. So that whole hallway leading into Maddox Theater is just a place you kind of want to walk quickly through because it doesn't bring a whole lot of joy. 
People have also claimed to hear a bell in the prop room of Maddox Theater that chimes on its own. And apparently this is because many years ago there was an actress who was sick and she tried to ring the bell for help as she felt like she was about to pass out. But nobody heard the bell and she wasn't found until days later because she had been there alone not during, I guess it wasn't a showtime when numerous people would be there. She was just there on her own. And nobody found her until days later clutching the bell. So that's sad and creepy and horrible, but that might be where the bell ringing is coming from. And then the Cheek Theater, named after Mary Ashby Cheek, is a smaller theater located on the ground floor of the Clark's Performing Arts Center, just opposite of Maddox. This is a much smaller theater, but still very spooky. It's painted black on every wall, giving it the creepiest appearance, which doesn't help its case since it also has voices and a shadow figure that roams up and down the aisles. Sure. Students and staff assert that is the ghost of a former teacher who died in a car accident and frequented that building and mostly worked and taught out of there. The shadowy figure is known to go up and down the aisles of the theater, but has also been sitting down in one of the seats towards the front. The sitting down story has only been spotted by maybe one or two students, but they didn't know each other, both reported it separately, so still a little weird that they both said it, but several people have seen a shadow figure walking up and down the aisles of Cheek Theater. So that's the Clark Arts Center, the most haunted, the one with the most sounds and bad energy. Then just a few yards south of the center is the Memorial Arch, known as Adams Arch. It was once an entrance to Adams Hall at the old campus, which housed many science labs and some recital halls as well. But the building was torn down and the arch was moved over to the new campus and completely rebuilt. But it was rebuilt out of all of the old stone um, from some of the old buildings and the original arch. So it still kind of housed the history within it, even though it was now just this lone standing arch that was there for memorial purposes. People say that when they walk by the Adams Arch on certain evenings, if it's quiet enough, a peaceful night, they report hearing the laughter of a young woman in its vicinity. Some claim it's the voice of several women. Some claim it sounds like a young girl. But either way, it is definitely female, and it sounds distant and quiet and joyful, which is a positive okay. thing. Well, Usually sounds like it's not a maniacal laugh. It's a nice, happy laugh. But definitely some female laughter that has happened on several reports. There isn't much known about who this could be, but because the arch was built with those original materials from the original campus, it could be anybody. It has a lot of history with it. So very interesting, spooky, but at least she sounds happy we can all hold yeah, on at least to she's that. not sad i would rather hear a even a maniacally laughing ghost than a crying one that's true you don't want to hear the upset moaning crying sound like at least there's something positive so then the last haunted area is the blanche walker burpee center um which serves as the college's welcome center and it also has the bookstore and the main offices for the admin team so some students and storytellers maintain that a man committed suicide in the basement radio station of this building, and that is why there's a weird energy here. But no one is quite clear about who this man is. Was he a student? Was he on staff? No one's sure, but people swear up and down that there was a man who committed suicide in the basement. So individuals who find themselves working late in the building report hearing doors slamming, loud footsteps, a man's voice, and just all kinds of horrible things blowing through the basement. So you never want to be there 
late at night unless you want to hear a demon man's voice speaking to you. So it's just kind of known that you don't stay there after hours if you can avoid it. Like, please try and go work somewhere else on your laptop. And these are the haunted areas of Rockford. It's not a super known college. It's not even a super known haunted story overall when it comes to haunted colleges. But if you dig deep enough, you find out Rockford's got some spooks. I don't even think I've ever heard of Rockford College. Is that bad? No, I hadn't either. Oh, okay. I also have a small connection before I fully finish. If you remember, I mentioned Jane Addams, who graduated from the college when it was just an all-female school. Jane Addams was the co- one of the co-founders of The Whole House in Chicago, which also has a little bit of a creepy tale to it. So first, a little bit on The Whole House, because it was actually so cool. It is... First of all, considered to be a haunted building, which makes it cool to us, of course. (laughs) It was built at 800 South Halstead Street in 1856 by a man named Charles J. Hull. And the neighborhood at the time was on the up and up. It was the cool place to be. It was trendy. Um, Hull and his wife opened the building and it was supposed to be, you know, kind of a community social house that people came to. But... Hull's wife passed away, leaving him to care for their two children, and then within a few years, his two children also passed away, just within a couple of years of each other. So this poor man lost his whole family while trying to run this place, and he was like, I'm horribly depressed, I hate everything, and I'm going to move to another part of Chicago and leave this place as it is. So Charles Hull left, but apparently his deceased wife decided to stay because it is said that she haunts the room that she died in, and many people have seen her figure walking through the building. The house survived the Chicago Fire of 1871, but the neighborhood itself went down badly. The area became filled with immigrants who were new to the country, but of course, as we know in our terrible country, this means that the reputation of an area drops significantly, and everybody started fleeing. And in the mid-1870s, the house was still functioning under different ownership and was a place for the elderly poor to come and seek shelter, but it saw a lot of deaths from these very sick people who were coming off of the street. So there was more death that came through this house and more hauntings that came forward. So it is said that there were a couple of small, unexplainable fires, similar to Macomb that we were just talking about. The appearance of a woman in white that walked through the halls and other shadow figures that roamed up and down all night long. And there was also an empty room that was never housing anybody, but the curtains refused to stay shut and seemed to always be open anytime somebody went in there. So little things here and there, very haunted place. But the weirdest thing of all happened after 1889 when Jane Addams and Ellen Starr came in and restarted the whole house. They made it a place where all of the new immigrants in the neighborhood could come and feel safe. They wanted to invite every nationality, every culture to come and find shelter. So people were coming in to take part in new education programs to help them get, you know, their footing in this new country, um, to help them find jobs. And then they also were welcoming women who were battered and abused to come in and seek shelter and also provide schooling for their children. So if women came in escaping their husband with kids, they also provided a space for the kids. So year after year, more people are donating because they love the ideas that Jane Adams is putting into this house. Everybody's getting it up and running. They start owning several buildings. They're doing great. But in 1913, after much success... 
These three Italian women show up at their door and they're screaming and banging on the door. So Jane Adams comes to the door and like tries to just open a little bit in the curtain because they seem like they're very aggressive and she doesn't really know what to do. And they say, we want to see the devil baby. We know you're housing a devil baby. She's so confused. She says, I don't know what you're talking about. We don't have a devil baby here. You know, we have some women and children here, but I don't know what you're saying. But they are demanding. They're screaming. They're pounding. They don't speak very good English, but they're starting to do charades. They're putting devil horns on their head. And they're trying to show every way of, we know there is a devil child in that building. So Jane Adams goes back to her staff. She's like, hello, what, do you know what this woman's talking about? Or that any of these women are talking about? Everyone says they're confused. They have no idea. And they send these women away. But... More people keep coming. People who are not just, you know, random, like maybe they're a little mentally unstable, like doctors start to come and they say, we hear you have a devil baby and we want to do studies on this baby. And Jane Adams is like, there is not a devil baby in this house. I don't know what you were talking about. People start coming and offering money because they want to see the devil baby so bad and she just doesn't know what to do. So she keeps sending people away. Um, saying that she's in complete denial, saying there's nothing like that here. So for six weeks straight, there was a heavy flow of traffic from everybody in the neighborhood, making their way to the whole house, trying to see what is going on with this devil child. So according to Jane Adams, it is complete folklore. Nothing has ever existed. There may have been a child that came in who had birth defects and a deformity. Someone spotted the baby entering the building and the rumor started. That's sort of what she's going on, but... These are the theories that have lasted years and years and that a lot of people in the paranormal community like to latch on to. So it is believed that a devoutly Catholic woman tried to hang a picture of the Virgin Mary on her wall, but her atheist husband tore it down and stated that he would rather have the devil himself in his residence than a home that had a picture of the Virgin Mary on the wall. And that several months later, because of the husband's curse, she gave birth to a devil child. That sounds like something that you would hear in like a doomsday church. 100%. (laughs) It's so true. The other version is of a man whose wife gave birth to six daughters, and when she was pregnant for the seventh time, the husband was enraged and said that he would rather her give birth to the devil than to another girl. And so she gave birth to the devil. So these are just talking about husbands that can just speak reality into a woman's womb. Um, then there is another story about a woman coming into the whole house to seek shelter with her child, but the child ended up being... A complete fiend um, was casting spells on people around the house, and that when everybody working at the house, all the volunteers tried to baptize the child to stop it from doing such evil things, the child escaped their clutches and went up to the attic upstairs where they were able to lock him in and keep him there, which that story is the most popular, even though it's very silly as well, but it's because... People claim to see up in the attic window on the whole house a little boy looking out at them with an evil little smirk on his face. So that is the most believed one. A lot of people claim that they walked by, saw the child up in the attic, and that is how the story was born. That there is a little devil boy living up there that is just being locked in the attic. And (laughs) that had to be chased out of the way. So... Whatever you want to believe, if there really was a child locked up in the attic, or if it truly was just started from a rumor, 
That is The Legend of the Devil Baby of Whole House. Sadly, the Whole House closed for good in 2012, but it has now been made into a museum that you can go into and read all about Jane, Ad Jane Addams and how awesome she was and how she was for women all the way, started a movement, was one of the first social activists out there, and the first American woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah, she's pretty tight. And actually, one of the beliefs is that the rumor of the hell baby of whole house was actually started by people who didn't like what Jane Addams was doing and were trying ah. to force her into ruin. Like oh, if they dang. ruined this her reputation, way of sabotaging her. Yeah, they basically were trying to sabotage her. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of people still believe that it's true and they go to the museum for that purpose because they're hoping to, you know, pick up something some kind of energy from like either the haunted history of whole house or the little boy in the attic but it doesn't seem like he ever existed no i don't think so uh rosemary's baby actually took a little bit of inspiration from that idea yes i did see that love um, it even more i have one final crazy illinois et related story and it is known as the infield horror have you heard about this I have not, you and I'm stoked. This? Okay. Enfield sounds familiar. Well, not to be confused with the Enfield Haunting, which is what oh, Conjuring that movie. 2 is based off of. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Which yep. happened in, in the UK. About 9.30 p.m. on April 25th, 1973, Henry McDaniel and his wife got home and were greeted by their two kids who proceeded to tell them that something had tried to get into the house by scratching on the door. They assured the kids that they were just spooked out. Everything was fine. But shortly after, Henry heard a scratching sound at the front door. Ugh. So he went to shoo away the cat or dog or raccoon that had found its way to their porch. But when he opened the door, he saw something terrifying. He said, It had three legs on it, a short body, two little short arms, and two pink eyes as big as flashlights. Nope. It stood no. four and a half feet tall and was gray colored. It was trying to get into my house. And he was terrified of this fucking thing. So he ran back in the house, got his twenty two pistol and a flashlight. And he went back on the porch and he fired on the creature about four times. And according to him, when he fired his first shot, he knows that he hit the creature. Um, and the creature hissed at him like it was a wildcat and scrambled away. And supposedly this thing cleared about 50 feet in three jumps and went into the brush by the railroad tracks near his home. He went inside and immediately called the police. Like, this was like, I have to report this. This is insane. Yeah. This is the most horrifying thing I've ever heard. I hate this. The police came out. They found a series of scratches in the siding of the house and footprints that were very similar to a dog's, but they had six toes instead of four. Ugh. And, not to mention, so two of the tracks were four inches wide, which is pretty big size foot, and yes. there was a third print left by the supposed third foot, which was smaller than the other two. So it has a tiny third leg? Yeah, it has a tiny oh, little third leg. This is just... I don't, I don't enjoy this. The police were skeptical, and they remained skeptical even after they found out that about an a half hour before Henry investigated the scratching at his door, there was an attack of a small boy in his yard. This boy lived behind in the house behind the McDaniels. And he had said 
that um, according to him, some deformed creature had attacked him, had jumped on him, ripped at his clothes with the claws on its arms, and the talons on the creature's toes had shredded his shoes. And he had his clothes as evidence. His clothes were like all ripped up. Completely shredded. Wow. So no one else saw the thing for a while. Everyone kind of moved on until two weeks later on May 6th at 3 a.m. when Henry McDaniels saw the creature again hanging out by the train tracks. And this time he just watched it. He watched it for over 10 minutes until it just sort of bounced away into the night. And apparently uh, in the next few weeks, the word infield monster had gotten around and people were flocking to the small town to try and see this thing. And apparently the townspeople were annoyed and Sheriff Roy Pushard Jr. came out to the McDaniels and warned him to keep his mouth shut about the creature. But people kept coming. The sheriff ended up having to arrest at least five hunters for shooting at a gray thing that ran through the woods. Two of them, Mike Mogul and Roger Tappy, both swore they had seen what they described as a gray monkey quickly move through the underbrush that they shot at and got arrested for. (laughs) Shortly thereafter, the hunters and the tourists finally left town. And then four more people saw the infield horror. I know. Rick Rainbow, which is a great name. Yeah, what a name. Rick Rainbow, who at the time was the director of the radio station WWKI in Kokomo, Indiana, was hiking in an area with three friends when they saw something that was about five feet tall, gray, and stooped over, and it was running through the woods near an abandoned house. It turns out they were unknowingly very near Henry McDaniel's house. The entity moved very quickly out of their sight, but they still heard it for much longer. Rick Rainbow supposedly recorded the creature's shriek as it ran away, and over the next several days, similar cries were reported to be heard surrounding the train tracks near McDaniel's home. Great. It should be noted that from April 20th to May 7th or 8th, so starting five days before the initial appearance, there was heavier-than-usual UFO activity reported in the infield area. So it's kind of sad to think that this thing was like an alien that got left behind. Right. Was it just looking for its fam? Yeah, just like didn't like maybe the ship had landed somewhere near the McDaniels farm, which is or house, which is why they kept it wouldn't leave that area. Right. Like it thought that's where they were going to come back. Like E.T. I know. So that's so sad to think. I know it could also be biological. I guess wildlife experts suggest that the creature was a kangaroo that escaped from a nearby zoo, which, okay, Um, uh, fine. I don't know if you've ever seen a kangaroo. I've seen a kangaroo and no, that does not sound like a kangaroo, sir. No, McDaniel was adamant that the creature and I quote, wasn't no kangaroo because (laughs) he had actually had a kangaroo as a pet while he was on military service in australia oh so he he knew what they looked like yeah probably more than you know this wildlife expert in illinois and also he knew that kangaroos tracks leave claw marks where this thing's tracks did not leave claw marks okay Um, so we don't know sure An anthropology student suggested that the creature may have been a wild ape. Apparently, wild apes have been reported throughout the Mississippi area since 1941. Which, what? 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 Who? No one told me. I've never been informed of this. It's a lie. (laughs) 
And uh, speaking of like wild apes, so uh, there was a creature that was sort of baboon-like in appearance that was reported to have been able to leap 20 to 40 feet that was sighted several times between the years 1941 and 1942 in Mount Vernon, Illinois, which is a town right next to my hometown, and also less than 40 miles from Enfield. So maybe it's a creature that is native to the area. Could be. Or it's a deformed kangaroo or a Mississippi monkey. Or the Mississippi monkey blowing my mind. Yeah. So um, no one ever saw it again, though. So it's not something where it's like a chupacabra where there's a sighting every X amount of months or years or like it was just those couple sightings and it was just gone. Just that time frame and then goodbye. So do we think its family came back? Yeah, I hope he got picked up. I hope he just got swooped up. I really hope. I think he was just looking for mom and dad. The other thing, too, like if it was a kangaroo or a monkey or whatever, like the McDaniels was positive that he shot it. Yeah. So he hit it. Yeah. So I feel like, I don't know. Wounded. Yeah. Or like dead. (laughs) Or like shot dead. Yeah. So you're so right. So that's the infield horror. That gave me all the chills. It's pretty creepy. Creature just showing up at your front door, scratching to get in. Imagine opening your door. Three legged. No, 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 no. When you were saying that, every part of me wanted to fall apart and gray creature with eyes as big as flashlights. No, thank you. I don't want it anywhere near me. That is like maybe if I was in the Amazon, I'd be like, "What's that?" But in Illinois, (laughs) no, (laughs) no. In the Midwest, hell no, that better not be coming to my door. That's that was too much. So that's all the time we have this week for <laughs> Keep It Weird. As usual, thank you for listening to our show. Um, I cannot believe that we were almost going to record two episodes tonight. Yeah, that's a joke. <laughs> we what just were we thinking for so long? <laughs> Oh, yeah, gosh, we were going to record back-to-back much. episodes, but I guess we'll just record the next episode uh, next week, <laughs> because next week we're going to be back in Illinois, and we're going to be sharing some true crime stories, some very cool Native American landmark stories, and one of the wildest paranormal stories I've ever read. Ooh, yes. Fellow Illinoisans out there, if you have any weird Illinois landmarks or stories, send us a message. You know we want to chat about it. Yes, Maybe we'll bring do. it up on the episode next week, but I just kind of want to I mean, talk to y'all. If we have time, because we don't. we, we, we don't. always talk for three hours. Because I have the That's same just... amount of notes for next week's episode. So I know. Expect dear. another two-hour um, episode coming at you. Speaking of chatting about it, once you guys are finished with Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix, head over to our Facebook group because we're having fun chatting about the specific episodes (laughs) of the show. And obviously, we want to hear your take as well. Yes. If you want to donate to our show and receive bonus episodes and newsletters, head over to www.patreon.com slash keepitweirdpodcast. If you want to follow us on social media, you can do so on Instagram, Facebook, and sort of Twitter. Our handle is (laughs) at keepitweirdcast. 
If you want to grab a Keep It Weird t-shirt or tote bag, head over to www.etsy.com slash shop slash Keep It Weird podcast. And if you're a Patreon member, make sure that you use your 10 to 20% off coupon. We also have a friends and family discount. So if you consider yourself to be either one of those things, drop us a line. Lauren, you have a sign off this week. Do you really want me to read it? Um, you wrote it. You have to read it. That's, them's, them's the rules. Uh, okay. I have a poem for tonight's sign-off. I hope everyone's ready. <coughs> if you hear an Illinois in the middle of the night that causes quite an Illinoisance, don't panic. Just go and investigate and try not to Peoria your nice pants. I've never met a more kind spirit than the ones in the land of Lincoln. So no need to drive off in your Carbondale and find a bar for heavy drinking. Just go to the Centralia part of your home and ask to meet the ghosty. He may just want to macomb your hair and by the fire get nice and toasty. That's beautiful. It's on that's par my, with that's my poem. The, Twas the Night Before Christmas. And oh, the best is. part about it is that no one's going to get it unless they're from Illinois. No, absolutely no one. Like, it is specifically for residents of that Illinois. That was just for y'all. That was just for y'all from my part of town. Anyway. Anyway, that's the end. Keep it weird. Keep it weird. <laughs> Who knows what Metamora is? Nobody. No one. Well, uh, technically, I guess if you've seen Wayne's World. Oh, wait. No, that's Aurora. That's Aurora. Shit, I don't if fucking know If you've what seen is. the Lincoln movie with What's-His-Toes, that really great actor who won the Oscar that I'm blanking on his name. He's 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 old and handsome and tall. You know um, everyone is screaming Daniel at us right Day now. Daniel Day Lewis. Oh, Daniel Mother Truckin' Day Lewis. 